thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, just a quick note before we begin this episode. The interview you are about to hear was recorded in mid-October 2019 and first aired on January 23rd, 2020. Well, we learned today, February 7th, 2023, that our guest on this episode, Rear Admiral Steve Briggs, passed away last night at the age of 81. Naturally, our condolences go out to the Briggs family and all of his former squadron mates. And in a moment, you'll hear our usual enthusiastic tone on the show. But of course, our hearts are broken and we are saddened by this loss. Rest in peace, kind Admiral. We have to watch. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 70. This week, we cut straight to the interview as a courtesy to our distinguished guest who joins us to discuss the carrier-based tactical nuclear strike aircraft that earned an impressive reputation as a conventional aircraft during the Vietnam conflict. Nicknamed Heinemann's Hot Rod and better known as the Scooter, today it's all about the legendary Douglas A-4 Skyhawk. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. The Fighter Pilot Podcast is once again honored to have a distinguished visitor on the show. Today's guest is a 1963 graduate of the Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps program at UCLA. He was selected to attend flight school and after winging, served in light attack squadrons flying the Douglas A-4 Skyhawk and LTV A-7 Corsair II. He served as commanding officer of Attack Squadron 94, Carrier Air Wing 5 aboard the USS Midway, the landing platform dock ship USS Ogden, and Amphibious Squadron 12, a unit of 15 amphibious ships. He served eight years as Rear Admiral at the one- and two-star levels as the commander of Light Attack slash Strike Fighter Wing Pacific Fleet, Fleet Air Western Pacific, and Naval Air Forces Pacific Fleet. His final Navy assignment was at the Pentagon, where he served as Director of Naval Aviation Plans and Requirements on the staff of the Chief of Naval Operations. Following retirement from the Navy in 1997, after 34 years of service, he joined the Northrop Grumman Corporation as Manager of the FA-18 International Programs Strategy and Development, and later served as Vice President and Program Manager of the company's FA-18 Hornet Strike Fighter Program. He additionally served as program manager of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter Program and as vice president and deputy for the Air Combat Systems Business Unit of Northrop Grumman Corporation's Integrated Systems Sector. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to welcome to the show retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Stephen Briggs. Admiral, thank you for being here today, sir. It's great to be here, Vince. Really appreciate the invitation and looking forward to talking to your listeners 
uh, and tell them about the finest airplane the Navy ever bought. All right. Well, sounds like you could talk about more than one, but let's focus today on the A4 Skyhawk. Now, before we do, any errors or omissions there on your uh, bio? What did I, I know I took some liberties and summarized 34 it's, years. It's more than enough. More than <laughs> enough. All right. And how many flight hours did you end up with? I forgot to get oh, that. Oh, I don't know. How many, uh, 2,500 or 2,800, something like that. Okay. I don't know. And uh, probably a handful of deployments, I'm sure. Yes, more than once. <laughs> more than once. Moved 26 times. You moved 26 times? Yep. <laughs> oh, man. Here I thought my 12 was a lot, but that was only over 24 years. Okay, wow. Well, let's talk about the Douglas A4 Skyhawk. Now, you told me before we recorded that you listened to our A, uh, not A7, F8 episode with mm-hmm. Turkey. Absolutely. So you have a feel for how this goes. That's about the same era. Yeah, I think, did you say you deployed with some F-8s? Yeah, we were, uh, I was on 27 Charlie Carriers during Vietnam. Okay. And we always deployed with two F-8 squadrons, both of those cruises, and then follow on uh, with some F-8s further on down the line on Oriskany okay. as well. What is 27 Charlie? That's not a- 27 Charlie was a World War II aircraft carrier oh. of the Essex class. Okay. It was then put through a modification program, ah. sometimes called the Oriskany conversion as well, okay. where the angle deck and the steam catapults, basic, a lot of other changes. But that was the big change when they got the angle deck and the, and the, and the mirror system, mm-hmm. mirror, not the lens yet, but the mirror system. And the steam cats came in. So it was a World War II carrier, which was mostly prop planes upgraded to now support jets. Absolutely. Okay. And it would take everything, but not the F-4s. Not the A6s. It was too big of an airplane to do that. Though we operated A3s, the whales, okay. uh, wow. off of it. Were the uh, wires necessarily closer to the back of the ship, I'm guessing? Was everything more compressed? The whole thing was a whole lot smaller <laughs> in every way, shape, or form. Yeah. Did you ever later land on a bigger carrier? Like a- I went on one big deck. I think I did a care qual as a department head going into this and went on a on the Kitty Hawk and and it was a fairly long story on what it took okay. to, to get my traps. I was the last one out and, uh-huh. and no no restrictions. I was went through three airplanes and nobody else was flying. Oh, and it was raining and I came back down and threw my hard hat across the ready room. The captain came down and, <laughs> to apologize. I said, first of all, before we start talking, he says, this is your first landing on a big deck, isn't it? So, well, yes, sir. He says, okay, I can tell a 27 Charlie that quits looking at the mirror and the, everything else and lands the airplane because that's all you did every time. Because <laughs> I know that's. Yeah. Kitty Hawk must have positively felt huge. It by, was huge. It was by, huge. By but in my first squadron, uh-huh. if you didn't get aboard on the first pass, you had to get out of the airplane and load the, air, load the bombs with the ordnanceman because you took time away from them. Ah. So you became very astute at making sure you got aboard every time. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Well, let's get into some of that here while we talk about the Douglas, originally Douglas, later McDonnell Douglas, A4 Skyhawk. And let's start with what the aircraft was designed to do. Interesting. Uh, good start of the question, too, Vince, because the airplane evolved in the jet age. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some big uh, airplanes before that. Uh, the big deal in those days with the B-36 and such was nuclear delivery. There was a desire to get nuclear delivery aboard aircraft carriers, though they will not often describe it publicly. There was not an intent for round trips on those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, the A-4 was very specifically designed to be able to carry a nuclear weapon and have sufficient fuel and systems to deliver it at distance. Wow. And that's why it stands so high off the ground and everything else. Right. Because those big, you know, 2,000-pound nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. had to be clear. And then— 
it very quickly grew into a conventional weapons delivery platform. And by the time you get to the Vietnam era, the A4 Charlie was in place. I happened to check in and flew one of the first A4 Echoes uh, as a nugget. It was a dive bomber by any measures uh, with all kinds of capabilities for delivery of weapons, uh, mostly just flat ass setting, you know, set up the gun sight <laughs> mechanically, you know, 122 mils plus or minus a mil, depending on the weather, mm-hmm. and dive at the ground and release it on, on altitude, on airspeed. Well, so in other words, it had a very specialized mission, but once the Navy received these aircraft, they said, well, we can't just wait for that day to come. We're going to use it for all these other things. And so, Absolutely. But in my first, uh, as the first nugget going on the ORI, I was selected for a weapon and we were given a nuclear weapon, mm-hmm. not a training shape, but a nuclear weapon. Okay. And it wasn't armed, of course. And we right. launched off after briefing and graded and flew it into Barber's Point and Turned the nuclear weapon over to the Marines and went wow. on our way. Wow. So, it, and that stayed with us throughout those early days, but not probably by 67, 68, that PSYOP mission, single integrated operation plan, right. pretty much went away. And it was still there as a secondary mission in the background, but it wasn't up front anyway. Gotcha. And then I, this came up, I think it was on our A7 episode, but as part of that, did you also maybe during transit to, on deployment to theater, have like certain cities or targets you would plan for as part of that uh, in case it ever did happen that you kind of oh, knew in advance? My f- target when I was a brand new nugget uh, was assigned back in Lemoore and, mm-hmm. and it was all prepared and all criticized and great and everything else. And then... Uh, the same thing the next time around. I had another target that was way up in the northern part of Russia and had to be all prepared, all the charts all done, and we would drill on those, and somebody would pull you out in the middle of it and ask, well, you just got shot down, now what do you do? Right. So it was a very serious, very major league process of getting ready for that. Right. Never well, did it, but... No, thank goodness. <laughs> and perhaps for all that, too, Vince, you had to, in the A4, be proficient at nuclear weapons delivery maneuvers. Right. So you were either doing, you know, an overhead maneuver where you would go over the target 200 feet, 500 knots, and then do a delivery maneuver overhead, releasing at about 120 degrees nose high, or a loft maneuver where you'd pull up about six miles, mm-hmm. 24,000 feet, four miles from the target, and then loft it at about 45 degrees to the target. And you had to maintain qualifications for that as well as conventional deliveries. Were you able to... Ab- Ever able to practice those, like with practice weapons at a normal range somewhere to see if it got close? Or was it not something where you required precision? Like, I'm guessing you dropped the little blue practice yeah, B7, bombs. Yeah, and, you know, Mark 76s right. we did all the time. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have a training shape itself, okay. which was a replicate of it that you gotcha. would do for that major exercise mm-hmm. on a dummy drop. But you fly out, go out there, and then my first CO was a superb air-to-ground pilot. He'd mm-hmm. been a Fagu Fleet Air Gunnery Unit right. instructor in the FJ Fury, and we were coupled up, and I'll get into that very closely all the time. I always flew with him. Okay. He never flew with anybody else. Huh. And the deal was, when we met, he says, okay, are you any good at the nuclear stuff? Because I don't like to do that stuff. <laughs> and so we bet everybody, and we always win. You take care of all the nuclear, I'll take care of all the conventional. All right. So we'd show up in Fallon and drink free the whole two weeks. <laughs> 
Well, some things haven't changed, sounds yeah. like. There's, that's still one of the last good O-clubs uh, yeah. in, in the system. Now, at some point, though, the aircraft was also adapted for air-to-air, at least a little bit, wasn't it? I've heard people talk about doing intercepts of Soviet bombers up in Alaska or Canada or, or whatever. Uh, Probably the first true mission, though, that had that capability, had, you know, two 20-millimeter guns in it, mm-hmm. and you could carry a sidewinder, I guess. Okay. Uh, but in the mid-60s, with... The demand for the bigger decks and such, they would send the CVSs mm-hmm. out and they would put A4B, six airplane debt with sidewinders and guns in them. Okay. That was what their mission was, was a, a protection mission mm. for the ship that was sailing sometimes in harm's way. As a matter of fact, a couple of them went up into the Gulf of Tonkin with that configuration hmm. to add to the uh, scouting positions. And then... It's a great jet. It handles beautifully. It does all kinds of things. It's it's honest. It doesn't hurt you. I mean, other airplanes out there will hurt you, but it doesn't hurt you if you're stupid. <laughs> and if you just say, oh, my God, what did I do? Mm-hmm. It knows what to do next, and it right. goes flying. And it became quite capable. It was a nice fight with an F-8. Oh, I imagine. Uh, you know, an A-7 against an F-4, that was just kind of, you know, pull it down. It's okay. Now the bullets are 10 inches apart, and they light the burners and fly away. <laughs> All right. Well, that's probably as good an answer as any to the next question, which is usually, what does it do well? And we've talked about it was good at ground attack, daytime, presumably. Absolutely. And day-night. I mean, we— Oh, night as well? Oh, yeah. We okay. did night reconnaissance and drops all the time. Had radar. Right. Once the A4E came along, mm-hmm. it had a pretty decent uh, air-to-ground radar, and we'd go out with flares on and go out to reconnaissance a road in North Vietnam, route package two, say, and light something up and— or a bridge as a backup target, and then okay. come around and bomb under, and bombed under the flares all the time. Matter of fact, that's where the risk and ease problem was, is flares had come off an A4, and one of them lit off, and they threw it into the, in the back into the flare locker, and that's <sighs> when everything happened to yes. that ship, and yeah. all those deaths. And mm-hmm. Were you on it during that? No, I was not. A bunch of Lemoore pilots were. Is that right? I forget how many people perished in that. It was quite a few. Big, 27 big or 8 aviators, I know. Wow, really? Mm. The ones you knew? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. I would also say it did well, um, you know, it acted later as an adversary and did a lot of good air-to-air work, and it handled quite well. And it handled quite well in that environment. Number one, it's a light airplane. Those versions were flying with 5,000 pounds of gas in them with a decent J-52 motor in them. Mm -hmm. And even eventually the P-48 came along. Uh, It had good thrust. And it was cheap. It was cheap to fly. It was cheap to build, as I understand. Less than a million dollars. The first standard was no more than a million dollars. And Ed Heinemann and his team, in some report, 32 days, designed the basic airplane. (laughs) uh, Ended up producing it for about 780, something like that. 780,000. And uh, (laughs) it was just, and it turned into a really fine strike aircraft. Right. Air to ground. I mean, I will tell you that I've flown that airplane with 10 500-pound bombs on it, which is more than a B-17 could carry. That's Not, crazy. Couldn't go as far. Right. <laughs> but we didn't have any good weapons release systems on it. So the first time you hit the pickle, five bombs came off, one off the center line and two off of each of the wing station, one off each wing station. Uh-huh. So all of a sudden, you hit the pickle five times, and you just cut down about 35% of your gross weight by then because <laughs> you were down to— Eight or nine hundred pounds of gas by the time mm-hmm. pulling off the target. So, oh, and it was quite maneuverable at that point in time. <laughs> I can imagine so. All right. Well, I had a chance to fly the TA4J yep. in flight school. Was there a trainer version of it when you were in flight school? When I went through flight school, the TF9 was the last two seater. Okay. 
uh, flew F-11s, checked in Monday morning, had classes Monday and Tuesday, took exams Tuesday afternoon, blindfold cockpit check on mm-hmm. Wednesday, and Thursday morning got in the airplane and looked in the mirrors, and nobody was in the back seat, <laughs> and, and away we went. And the same thing with the A-4 when we got there. There was yeah. no two-seaters, and there were no two-seat uh, A-7s when I right. started flying. I was a RAG instructor way back in the beginning okay. uh, for a year in uh East Coast in V-174. And in both cases, with the A-4 and the A-7, they were later able to come up with variants, right? Not like an F-A-18B, which was designed as a Mm two-seat from the beginning, but the TA-7, TA-4, in fact, the TA-8, as we learned recently, TA-V-8, I guess, uh, Harrier. So they later made the two-seat version. Indeed. I was uh, not the last class, but I was one of the first classes where they offered the T-45. And I said, well, that'll be around a long time. I'd like to fly the A-4. So I have about 100 hours in it. Yeah. And I enjoyed it. It was fun. I mean, airplane. you could put your arms kind of almost like you're putting them around uh, your girlfriend and they would be outside the cockpit. I mean, the cockpit was very small. Uh, we always said that you don't get in an A-4, you put it on. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got in an A-7 that I actually got in the cockpit. Right. Because you realized that <laughs> it's, it's a, a big co- more, It's a huge yeah. cockpit. Relatively. No, the A4 was fun. We had a couple taller gentlemen that really, I don't know how they squeezed in there, but. On that subject of, of size, I, in August of 64, as mm-hmm. you all remember, that was the first strikes in Vietnam. Right. I finished care quals later that week, that month. Okay. And after we finished care quals in, in Kingsville, you could talk to your detailer. So we all met at my house, kicked in for a phone number because there was no Audubon or anything like that. <laughs> In those days, and I'm talking to him, and he said, "Okay, I got your record, Briggs. What do you want to do?" I said, "Well, I want to fly A4s a little more." He says, "Have you been watching the news lately?" I said, "Well, sure." He says, "You still want to go to Lemoore flying A4s?" I said, "Sure." He says, "How tall are you?" I said, "Five ten." He says, "You got it. You're an ink." <laughs> that was the qualification. Like that. that wasn't. You couldn't be over six two. I think. Wow. I had a skipper that was a little taller than that, and he. Kind of flew slumped over most slumped of the time. Slumped when it was time to get measured as annual flight physical, I'm guessing. All right. Well, that's crazy. Uh, so let's talk about variants. Now, there are many, and let's not necessarily rehash them all. You flew the C and the E, you said. Uh, were there any others, and which was your favorite and why? Uh, I only flew the E. Okay. Other well, I, than, okay I flew T's. I mean, T's, sure. you know, back now and then going somewhere when I was sitting in uh, 174, flight time was scarce, so I'd go jump in the backseat of a TA-4 next door. Okay. But I only flew the A-4E. Okay. Cause, and I was the first class where there were two of us, Nuggets, that came in and got straight into A-4 Echoes because they, they were just coming into the fleet in uh, early 65. But all those versions up the line, A-4C mm-hmm. was throughout the force by then, had a, a J-65 motor in it, only had three stations, uh, couldn't carry as much, uh, didn't have the systems that the E came in. The E came in. It had a lot already, had a good radar in it. Uh, you could actually navigate around hmm. and at least kid yourself that you knew where you were. <laughs> and uh, while I was on cruise, we started getting the EW gear in it. And that's when we lost all our guns. We used to have, finally, we'd go off the bow with 49 rounds of 20 millimeter, which is what would fit in the vertical chutes because the hill hole was filled where the guns used to go. The gun the ammunition used to go in there. It was all filled with EW gear and everything mm. else. And again, for the folks that aren't aware, electronic warning, meaning that gave you a sense of, uh-oh, someone's looking at me yeah. with radio frequency energy, and that means they could be guiding a missile on me or something yeah. along those lines. And then the A4F came after that, which put a hump on the back of it. Yeah. And that's all that gear went up in the hump. Okay. And that was what the hump was, is to get all that extra avionics 
out of there. And I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know for sure. And then they went online and, and eventually the Marines were flying, right. good, you know, some red hot A4s, having a, a lot of fun with them mm-hmm. and sold them all over the world. I mean, the Israelis through the 73 oh, yeah. war. Oh yeah. And interesting side story. I'd, I read it online, so it's okay. So it's got to be true. I'm not telling any. I know it's true <laughs> because I didn't want to tell it until I'd read it online. Oh, oh okay, good. Some Navy A4 pilots took off out of Cecil Field and hopscotched across the Atlantic Ocean. A carrier sent their tankers out, tanked them in. They landed on the carrier, refueled. Another got them all the way into the med. One more tanker there. Wow. One more carrier there. Delivered them into Israel. Got out. Didn't have any uniforms or anything else put their civilian clothes on, went to the airport in Tel Aviv and flew home. They probably... And they had a story. <laughs> that's quite a story. And they were and probably that's a true operations. Wow. As opposed to a sea story, that's a real story. Okay. And I won't tell you the difference between a sea <laughs> story and a fairy tale. All right. The uh, avionics hump on some of those later models, I always thought that gave it a kind of a real menacing look. I don't know why I always thought it was yeah, pretty neat, yeah, but I guess yeah. beauty's in the eye of the beholder. You probably know it better from before the hump, so kind of dirty, you know, all that crap up there. Much Did too it much, slow it down a too much. Bit? I don't know. Had a bigger motor too. <laughs> Did it? Uh, and then the P6 and P8, P408 came in. And, but I don't think they ever had one with an afterburner, right? No, it was one of the possibilities when they competed on the same contract that the A7 won. Because okay. Douglas came up with a a larger E4 with a bigger motor. I don't know if it had an afterburner, mm-hmm. but that was just a one-off. Right. And yeah, to your point, besides Israel, a quick search, I found Australia, New Zealand, Kuwait, Malaysia, Singapore, Brazil. I think even what, the Argentinians had them. Argentinians, uh, there's a couple of uh, Royal Navy gentlemen are not that fond of Argentinian A4s. I can imagine. From those days. Okay. All right. So little scooters really been yeah. around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're sitting on a whole lot of poles across the country, too. Oh, yeah. Well, they have such an amazing look and such a great little airplane. But speaking of looks, you know, and people getting to look at them, they do have a distinct look. We talked about the landing gear, and I've actually used that before. I forget what episode, but the fact that it's on these stilts of landing Mm -hmm. gear, and that's to hold the uh, nuclear weapon off the ground, of course. But what else would you say describes or is a feature of why it looks the way it does? I mean, it's again, it's a pretty unique little airplane. I think it looks cool. Probably the biggest thing is the wing itself. It is an incredibly well-engineered piece of aeronautics and structures because of its structure. Doesn't fold, doesn't need to fold because it's small, because the airplane's small anyway. Uh, And because of that, you could put ordnance across the bottom of that wing from one side to the other. And literally, you could carry 500 pounds out on a wingtip. You put a 500-pound bomb out there. That's quite a bit. I mean, you're not going to find something in that, you know, the Hornet can't. I've flown Hornets too, okay. (laughs) And I will confess right now, up until I flew the Hornet the first time as a as an old man, uh-huh. I thought the four was the best airplane I ever flew. And then I flew a Hornet, <laughs> and it was just a Block Twelve. Oh wow! Well, that's still Hornet. relatively new by and some so standards. So it was uh, arguably the only aircraft I can think of that didn't have either swept or folded wings for carrier storage because it was already so narrow. Yeah. Wow. Although the interesting those old people and I know about the F eleven. The wingtips didn't fold up. They dropped down. Oh. You know, I had a student went out and on a solo hop and Uh-oh. pulled a thing so hard the wingtips came off. <laughs> he calls up to the tower. He says, hey, tower, he says, I can't slow before below 325 knots. He says, well, it's going to be tough to land at that speed, so why don't you go out to the southeast and eject? We'll send the helicopter That's what he did. over for it. Really? Wow. Well, then there's pictures of F-8s and I don't know if A-7s, but, you know, flying with the wings. Still. F-8. Oh, yeah, a lot of it. Yeah. F-8s. 
I haven't heard of an A7, F, uh, I, A7 I wing folded, but F8 wing folded, that's, it had that big motor. I mean, yeah. it had a big motor. It could do it. A7 was underpowered at its finest day. <laughs> Let alone with its wings folded up. All right, fair enough. I like the A7, don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. So weapon stations, early ones had three, later ones had five. You Correct. said yeah. all of those would have one on the center and then either one or two on each wing. Yeah. And then we talked about two 20 millimeter cannons. I did get to fire those, by the way, in yeah. uh, training. That was yeah. fun. And then uh, Sidewinder for air-to-air. Had sidewinders and and we uh, a, a variety of weapons. We were fortunate in flying A4 Echoes, and we were the we were two twelve was the first squadron to employ the walleye television guided okay. weapon in both of its variants. Uh, the bullpup was you know leftover from times past, and you know it was something to do while you're while they're shooting at you from the flak site while you look at them because <laughs> you had to keep pointing at it the whole time to because it just had a flare in the back end and you kind of flew it. Wow. With a joystick. Uh, but it had a small one, a nominal 500-pound one, and then about a—I think the big pull-up was about 1,200 pounds. It came off the center line. But whereas the small one actually went off on rails, the big one just ejected, and then the, the motor lit off below you. So you had to launch it and then hold full nose up on it so you could see it. But So hold on a second, because I, I don't know that much about the bullpup. So you would be flying your Skyhawk. And then simultaneously flying somehow this weapon once it Yeah, what you do, probably about a 20-degree dive. You're probably standing off somewhere around okay. 12,000 feet, something like that. And then you get your target in sight, uh-huh. and you're in range of the bullpup. Sure. I'm way too old to remember what that was. Okay. Uh, but you'd release it, and then you'd fly it. Think of a, using a trim switch. It was okay. kind of like that. And you would fly the bullpup huh. into the target. And you'd just kind of just sit, line, line up straight down there. And then and they'd be shooting at you while you were shooting at them. And they usually won, so you quit. <laughs> uh, but then with the big one, you would eject it down, and then you had to fly it back up into your field of view because it would wow. the motor would you know, start up about 20 feet below the airplane. Okay. Did you carry a data link pod or something to send a signal to the uh, bullpup? Quite honestly, I don't remember. But it was something. <laughs> there was something it was that, certainly not any, anything well, as fancy as Datalink. I don't okay. Know. Well, that's like for the slam. It was probably I'm... a radio frequency of some sort. Right. Okay. An RF. Very basic. Up, down. W- were people uh, effective with it? Could you get good hits? No, they were no damn good. <laughs> don't get sure. me wrong. They're yeah. a lot of fun. And, and you always like to do that on yeah. or I get the bullpup out. Yeah. And there was a flare on the back, so yeah, you just, just literally and you just look it at visually. It. <laughs> Gosh. But then uh, oh boy, uh, we got the Shrike missiles. Okay. And that was like an that early version huge, of anti-radiation, right? Uh, that was the first anti-radiation okay. mover. And that was probably the one big thing because we as an A4E squadron flew Iron Hand missions mm-hmm. uh, where you would have usually a couple Zuni pods on and a couple Shrikes. And when they came up, you would detect it on your aircraft gear, get it locked up on the missile, and then you'd shoot the missile. That usually encouraged them to turn their radars off. Ah. Let's just put it that way. Well, I understand that mission took a certain level of bravado, may I be polite to say? I mean, stupidity would be another word. <laughs> and no, it was. It, you had to be very comfortable. And, and I was a strike pilot, division lead, mm-hmm. but it was way into my second cruise. I'd had over a couple hundred combat missions by then. Okay. And we used to fly with a wingman, and it had to be an A4E wingman simply because of the maneuverability of the airplane. But then we'd lost a number of airplanes, and we could carry far more bombs than the Charlie. So the CAG ops officer was an F-8 pilot, and he and I hatched up the idea, well, why don't you be my wingman? You can keep up with me in a turn. Right. And so I long explained, okay, now, 
be ready. They're going to shoot at you. They're, I'm absolutely positive they'll shoot at us. And I'm going to pull it away at the right time. But I want him to be committed before we pull away. And when we do, I'm going to say, stand by, break left now. And so, got it. Talked about it. Okay. You're going to, you're going to let him shoot. Yeah, you're going to shoot. So, sure. Sam came at us. He says, okay, there he is. He's breathing harder and harder. And, and so, I finally pulled up and shot the strike. And so, let's break left now. Well, because it was an F-8, I had to make certain that I did it earlier than I normally would have. Okay. Because I knew he was going to be trailing way outside of me. Because, uh-huh. you know, again, very light, A4, very clean in those days. Right. I just put the stick in my lap. He would have been in Laos by the time we came around. So, <laughs> came back. So, you have plenty of room. And I'll always, I'll never put you in a bad mood. But it worked out quite well. Because okay. it, it put more bombs on target. Because we could carry, mm-hmm. in the Echoes, more bombs than the Charlies. Wow. When you got back, was he willing to go again? Oh, yeah. Whitey <laughs> okay. Varner was his name. If All right, right, fair enough. Good guy. Other air-to-surface weapons, uh, pretty much the whole gambit, I'm guessing. General purpose, hydrag, bombs. Uh, everything from uh, then there was the period of time when there was no ordnance shortage, and we were carrying World War II bombs. That was always really exciting. Wow, I can imagine. A&M series bombs. Okay. Uh, napalm was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It sometimes made your day. Is it true there's nothing like the smell? I guess you don't smell it in the airplane, but, uh, uh, you know, No, that's true. Now, uh, <laughs> anyway, all right. And then, let's see, I think you said uh, rockets. Was uh, cluster munitions, was that an issue? Or Oh, yeah, we had CBU-24s 24s? 24s? All, okay. all the time. All right. Uh, and they were good. Flex suppressors use those all the time. Right. You always throw a Spread handful of those in mm-hmm. there. And then uh, the 2.75 19-shot Mighty Mouse, they Mighty were called. Mighty Mouse, that's right. Time. Opposite of the Zuni and rockets. They were just a lot of fun, inch. but the Zuni, yeah. Was, yeah. Zuni was always my favorite weapon. Oh, I can imagine. The trajectory drop of a Zuni was three mils. You just set your gun sight at four mils, and it hit what you—it yeah. was the Magic Pipper. That's cool. You know, next time I saw a Magic Pipper was in an F-18, but <laughs> this is a Magic Pipper with right. a Zuni on it. All right. Did uh, laser-guided weapons come along at some point on the A-4? Uh, I'm sure they did, but— not during your past, time flying them? Past my okay. time. And for the walleye, so when I first got to F-18s in the mid-90s, they were still around. They mm-hmm. went away. But we had the walleye 2 Ertl, yeah. extended range yeah, dialing. dialing yeah. The thing was almost as big as an F-18. I'm oh, guessing, yeah. was, was that the one you guys carried on the A-4? We, or was we started the small one, we the small one okay. first. We, in 212, were informed that we were selected to be the first walleye squadron. Okay. And we had to train up for this one. Mm-hmm. We only had about a four and a half, five-month turnaround, something like that. So here we are. And the PhDs that designed it mm-hmm. down in China Lake came up to train us. So can you imagine a bunch of A4 pilots, <laughs> 2 o'clock in the afternoon in August in Lemoore, trying to pay attention to the differential equation that oh, was man. the guidance theory? From you know, an engineer. <laughs> and, but we uh, took that. They had made, handmade, basically 40 weapons wow. we put on the ship. And when we got over there, the CO was called up to 7th Fleet. And the Seventh Fleet wanted to see the list of his walleye pilot, pilots, and mm. gave him a list of the squadron pilots. We're all trained up for it. He said, no, which four? And they compromised at six. Okay. So it was the succulent six. We threw all the them out. <laughs> but we, the weapons were in such a condition, we would fly them. We would take off and fly them, one of those six pilots, and mm. make a grade sheet on it. Was it good? How was the, how was the image? How was the display? Right. Da-da-da-da. And then we would... Use that depending on the particular mission we're going to go on. Uh, okay. If it was a high-threat mission, hey, we're going to put one of the good weapons on right. We're not going to put one that the guy's got to fight and fight and fight. So. But the idea was you could see what the weapon was seeing while it was in the cockpit 
while the weapon was aboard, I should yeah. say. And then once you locked it on and then released it and that was it. Yeah. Right. So in later models on the Ertl, as we call it, you had the ability to update it all the way. and You could control it all the way. Right. So people who have seen, if they remember from Desert Storm, let's say, the you know CNN footage of a target getting closer and closer and closer and yeah. it goes in the window, that could have been something else, but it was like that. And yeah, that idea. That was something we had to fly in while you were flying again to the point of your bullpup. You're flying your airplane and flying the weapons. So Yeah, it's right. interesting when we introduced it. We had a pilot TAD from VX-5 in the squadron who was okay. flying with us. And he would go out on a mission, and his was a combat evaluation drop, and ours was actually a combat hop. <laughs> he couldn't get points because he didn't have any orders. <laughs> but uh, right. we'd gone out with the first mission and, and went to an Army barracks, and it worked out well. And we were sitting in Hong Kong, and four of the six pilots were sitting in Hong Kong on R&R. Mm-hmm. And then somebody in Washington decided it was time to go after the Thanwa Bridge, mm-hmm. and the ship was supposed to get underway. And the CEO runs up and says, well, four of the six pilots are going to fly that mission are in Hong Kong. <laughs> so we got recalled and got back aboard, went out. and Heavens. Yeah. Stephen Kuntz, who was on the show, actually. Yeah, my part of that one, too. Uh, yeah. he, he is uh, writing a book. If it hasn't already come out, I forget, but uh, about the bridge. Yeah. All right. How about performance of the A4? What was the fastest you ever flew on? How high? How many Gs? Do you recall? I want to say it was about six and a half Gs in flight school. Of course, they... Wouldn't you could do... you could pull seven and a half. Did you have to go speak to the maintenance officer? Or... Uh, you were just careful. Okay. <laughs> more than, quite frankly, obviously all you young pilots listening fly no more than the NATOP says. That's right. But it's the rate of application so much. I, I'm a master's in aero too. It's the rate of application as well as the absolute mm. number. I mean, every weapons delivery maneuver was a 4G pull out. And if you had pressed it, maybe it was a five and a half G. Six, six and a quarter, probably. Uh, you know, you get dumb after that. You start pulling the slats off if you get too dumb. Speed, I don't know. Going downhill. It wasn't supposed to be supersonic. No, it was too. It was way too dirty in front. Okay. If it could do point nine, downhill. Downhill. Like you said very steep. Mm, yeah. With a whole lot of weight on. <laughs> How about? Um, do you ever have one up very high altitude? They wouldn't let us go above forty three because okay. we didn't. The systems. In that day, and in this day and age, I mean, your blood boils there, so it was against the rules to go above 43,000 okay. feet without a pressure suit. Well, but the cabin was pressurized. Oh, yeah. yeah it wasn't very reliable. 35,000. Yeah, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Up at 43, it was at 35, so oh, you, yeah. it probably, you know, okay. not that much fun. Well, even today, a lot of the aircraft with the cabin pressurization challenges and, you know, old SEALs, sometimes they just don't go very yeah, high. Yeah. That was the deal with yeah. the F-16s that we yeah, had absolutely. in Fallon when I left. Yeah. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today.
about strengths and weaknesses. What was some of your favorite features about the A4? Survivability. Oh? Brought me home 229 times. My On wife a single loves engine. It. They had one motor, didn't need to. It had a good utility and a good flight hydraulic system. Okay. And it didn't need either one of them to fly home. Hmm. I had to step out of an A7 because I had zero hydraulics in it. Really? Uh, but if you ha- if you, I was on a strafing run and got hit in the nose into the armor plate right where my heel was and lost all that utility hydraulics. Not a big deal. You could just drop it, gravity. Uh-huh. And it was such that it would just hit the, hit the windstream and just drop down. And rat had a good ram air turbine, mm-hmm. pull that sucker, and you could fly home with that. You could land it without any hydraulics at all. I had flight. I didn't have any utility, but I had flight. But if you lost everything, you could land it, no hydraulics whatsoever. Even yeah, on I just sort of, uh, didn't want to do that. It okay. was not enough. It was, sure. you're fighting it. Right. Okay. Anything above 200 knots, you were really, oh, really hard to fly. Yeah. But you could come straight into a field, no problem whatsoever. Mm. And probably the survivability thing. Wow. I mean, I got tagged really good up into Plain de Jars, way up in North Laos, and had to land a new Dorn, big hole in the wing, and, and all the gas was that was left was all around me. And mm. I was camped out, ready to stay up in New Dorn, Thailand for about two weeks while the Air Force fixed the airplane. And the next morning I come in, the CO uh, was a firm believer that you always take care of your wingman. So he jumped in the tanker and flew all the way up to northern Thailand to pick me up. And so I launched with 1,100 pounds of full internal and in, in the bladder uh-huh. and tanked all the way down to the DMZ. Another tanker took me all the way up to the ship. It was the survivability. Wow. It could take a hit and could keep on ticking. Wow. That's I mean, if those of you that have seen the picture of the nose gear down and the tail hook down mm-hmm. of a beat-up A4, that was Al Cribo in my second cruise, and he got a, a SAM too close by, and he just ran out of gas, kept flying. Couldn't land it on the ship. There was no way to right. land it anywhere, Right, but it stayed flying. Uh, good motor. Was there more than one rat, as I recall? No. And was it just for hydraulics, not electrical? Okay. Electrical only. It was electrics. There was what? Flight control disconnect. Yeah, I remember there was different handles. Emergency, emergency jettison. Right. You would clean off the airplane. He had a CAG to get frustrated. He'd forget to turn his arm, master arm switch, so he'd just reach down and pull the T-handle and throw away all the, <laughs> the, the MERS and the weapons. And oh, dear. He was a fighter pilot. I see. Ah, okay. Well, we'll get to that. All right. How about any weaknesses you're willing to admit with your favorite airplane here, I assume? Uh, <laughs> for what they were doing mm. in that particular war, I can't, I mean, lost 20, you know, as soon as I, I say survivability, I'm looking at my notes. They lost 280 of them, okay? All right. To combat. A whole lot of people came home, though. All right. Beyond that. Yeah. I mean, pictures of guys standing in the holes in the wing. All right. Not a big deal. It's tough to say anything bad about an airplane that does that. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll close that with a quick story of, had the honor of meeting Ed Heinemann when I was in Lemoore. He was probably well into his 80s. He was the aircraft designer. He was the designer okay. for Douglas. I always called it Heinemann's Hot Rod. He came up to the last, last light attack wing ball, and there was some A-4 pilots there, a lot of older A-4 pilots like me. And there was a lot of old A-4 pilots' wives there. There was a line first to the guys, and then the guys left and the wives went up to thank him. Mm, that's pretty cool. Good airplane. Yeah. 
No, it's always hard to ask, you know, weaknesses because, again, it wasn't designed to do everything. So, sure, maybe it would have been great to have more fuel or an afterburner, but it wasn't, you know, part of the deal. So it was very good for what it was designed to do, it sounds like, and loved by its pilots. If it would have been a little smoother in the dive, I had the joy of bombing a Phantom one time, and that's just like, you can go out and get a cup of coffee and come back, and the pipper's still where you put it. You had to, you had to work with that <laughs> okay. for a little bit. All right. Well, but that makes you better, arguably, because <laughs> you're, you're paying attention the whole time. Fair enough. Well, where would the listener have seen the A4, whether it was in Hollywood or on demonstration teams? I mean, how do people know about the A4 Skyhawk? Well, if any of your readers have not yet seen Top Gun, <laughs> go watch it, first of all. I'm pretty sure they all have. But so I'm, I'm yeah. making that presumption, okay? Yeah. Uh, but it was on Top Gun. It was the aggressor aircraft Sure, there. so Viper and— uh, Yeah, Viper flew them. Anyway, um, Jester. Yeah, they all and, flew. I think those were straight Echoes with a big motor in it. Oh, nice. They were okay. clean. All right. Uh, the Blue Angels flew them for a number of years mm-hmm. uh, when they got tired of uh, ejecting F-4s. And, <laughs> and the, we won't go into the survivability of the F-4 if it gets hit. <laughs> and that was back during the oil crisis and everything else. Mm-hmm. And both teams went to light aircraft. And right. they flew them. And pilots, you talked to pilots who flew it there. They liked it there. Oh, yeah. It was very nice. That's what the Blue Angels were flying when I first saw them as yeah. a young child. Then. They're, they're on sticks remember. at all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. If you drive by any naval air station, there'll be an A4 on a stick somewhere. I guess it was in 13 days, although I haven't seen that, but that's what my uh, team provided me with. Tropic Thunder. But my favorite, as it's a very, very quick, is uh, We Were Soldiers. Huh? Uh, that's one of my favorite war movies. Huh? And when they do the broken arrow scene and all the aircraft show up to help, there is one scene with an A4. It comes straight onto the camera and it's 20 millimeters or a lighten yeah. up. And uh, so it, it makes a guest appearance in yeah. that movie as well. So, all right. Fairly well known. So it said, you said you, it brought you home 229 times. Yeah. I presume that's how many missions you flew yeah. then. All right. Any one of those particular stand out in your mind? Uh, you said you stepped out of an A7. We could save that for another day since this episode's about the A4. But any one mission, when you think back to the A4, that really sticks out in your mind? Any great stories uh, from your time in it? Probably a couple. One, I'm going to give you the one that would have been the most memorable if it would have happened. <laughs> Never let the truth get in the way of a good story, we like to say. No, it was all scheduled. It was our last day in the line, my second cruise. Okay. We had just finished. Alpha strikes three a day in July of 90 or 67. And CAG Jack Munger had been collecting bombs and he had a bunch of 2000 pounders down in the, in the magazines. Mm-hmm. And he decided that we we're going to go after the Thanwa bridge the way it should be done. And he wrote the flight schedule and I got one of the bombs and we were going up. We'd, Done the brief. I mean, there's nothing. If it would have gone, there would have been some upward mobility mm-hmm. in a number of the squadrons. Oh, but sure. But we were all bulletproof by then. We didn't care. <laughs> and uh, but on the way up the flight deck, got the flight deck and uh, forced all it blew up. Yeah. And canceled it. Yeah. And that would have been the one. Okay. But it wasn't. That would have been pretty hairy though. All probably, right. So <laughs> I would guess probably Haiphong POL, a big strike on a petroleum oil lubricants. Field right south of Haiphong, way into bad guy country, a lot of flak and everything else. And there was 16 bombers on it. Uh, We had two divisions from each of the squadrons, had F-8 coverage and everything else. Mm -hmm. And I had the the pleasure, the honor, the task, the tedium of being number 16, 
because I had to record the whole thing <laughs> on a motion picture camera uh, on my center line while I dropped my bombs too. Okay. Uh, so that was probably exciting because I, I had launched with 1082s and, and I launched first and I, when I pulled off the target, I had 900 pounds of gas. I was still over bad guy country. So I, it was a little exciting after I got that, but got the pictures. Nobody ever had to go back to that yeah. POL. Very good. And as far as flying it, I mean, I think you touched on this earlier. Was it easy or did it take some effort? I mean, how, how did you find in like the cockpit ergonomics, if you will, as far as where switches were? Listeners in the past have told me they like hearing, was there any workarounds, for example? Did you have to put a little extra, you know, something on a particular switch so that you could feel it without having to look kind of thing? I mean, was there any workarounds or how, what was it like to fly? I will tell you, I cannot think of anything down as a bad idea mm -hmm. when you describe that. It was a great airplane. It was just, yeah. it was a pilot's airplane. Yeah, with some switches out of the way in a tiny cockpit. Yeah, but you didn't need them. Okay. There was one switch that I always kept my hand on, and that was the dump switch, because I was young nugget in the squadron on my second mission after I joined, and uh, flying up to Fallon for night bombing, and we were supposed to uh, have a 7,000-pound load, and I ended up with a 9,400-pound load, so I had to and so my section leader said, okay, dump some gas. And I turned the dump switch on, but next time I looked down, I had 1,100 pounds of gas. <laughs> and from then on, I never, ever, ever dumped gas in any airplane I've ever flown without my hand on the dump switch. <laughs> if I had to talk on the radio or whatever, mm -hmm. I turned the dump switch off, talk, put it back on the dump switch. All right. So I understand, but in case a listener maybe doesn't. So in other words, you were, you had more fuel than you wanted. And for the performance, you needed to get down to where everyone else was. Yeah. So you began to jettison fuel effectively and then got distracted. Yeah. And there was no indication to you and you were on to something else. And so it just kept dumping and dumping and dumping until you were down to 1100. And I'm guessing you either stopped in or spent the night in Fallon. I spent the night in Fallon. <laughs> I was the last plane to fly at Fallon. And uh, after pleading with the to let me land and I could not go anywhere else but Fallon yeah and I basically called my wife up uh, with a, some borrowed money and knowing that this was the end of my flying career it was brief but it was exciting because surely when I got back I would be have my wings taken off I landed back in Lemoore it's hard to those of you that haven't been to Lemoore out in the middle of the Central Valley there's nothing else there except the Naval Air Station and of course when you come into runway 32, the typical duty runway, you come right up the road that everybody's driving to work on. Mm -hmm. And I was driving up the highway, going into the break, and 7.30 in the morning, knowing full well, got up to, <laughs> got up to the ready room, ready to take all kinds of crap. Yeah. I walk into the ready room, got a couple of hoo-hahs. I got invited up to get my YDS of the Day award. Why do uh, you dumb? Yeah, okay, yeah. gotcha. <laughs> Did you get a call sign out of that? Sometimes no, that's how, no, no call signs. We didn't believe in call signs. Oh, okay. That, that was for the for the fighter pilots that couldn't remember each other's names. So <laughs> I point out, uh, I'm not a fighter pilot. Okay? Uh, I flew F fours. Right. I flew F 18s I'm not a fighter pilot. I'm All a right. light attack pilot. Okay. Well, Admiral, do you know that there are still A fours flying today uh, with Draken, for example? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You think you could jump right back in and go? Probably so. It's <laughs> it's not that hard. Yeah. I mean, you take a look at some of the people they taught to fly it. It can't be that hard. 
Well, and speaking of that, when you were a nugget and you dumped way too far, I'm sure the CEO had some words for you. But in the end, look, every nugget makes a bonehead maneuver. Yeah. So you had yours, and yeah, I went into I went in to talk to the CEO. He said he said close the door. I'm standing in front of his desk, knowing that this is it. We're still shiny. And he said, did you learn a lesson? Yes, sir. He says, okay, get out of here. (laughs) I'm sure he'd never done anything. (laughs) Uh, I'll hit you if you say Kenny Sugar ever did anything wrong. He was the finest (laughs) officer I've ever served. Fair enough. All right. Gosh, this has been a lot of fun, Admiral Briggs. I, <laughs> Steve is the name still. All right, thank you. I'll defer it till you tell me otherwise. But, you know, I say this every episode. We could go on and on, and certainly the A-4 deserves its day in the sun. It's been a great aircraft for so long. I mean, golly, the thing is still flying. Here we are, what, 60 years later? Mm-hmm. And, of course, not the ones they originally built, but uh, they're, they're still serving out there. They're still doing red air for our friends out in Nellis uh, day in and day out, and I've had a couple of those guys on the show. What did I not ask you? What does the listener need to know about the Douglas A-4 Skyhawk? I think uh, there were more losses in A-4s in naval aviation, more sorties flown than any other similar aircraft mm-hmm. in naval aviation. It wasn't the biggest airplane, but it was a damn good one. Well, I would agree with that. I am I count myself fortunate to have 100 hours in it. And of course, I was not even winged yet, so I didn't know what was going on. But <laughs> it was just to be able to say you flew the A-4 for me was an honor, and it's been an honor to talk about it today. I mean, gosh, yeah, we left out... Ted Schwartz shot down a MiG with one with Zuni rockets, I believe. Yeah, if you believe that story, too. I saw him in Tailhook, and I was going to ask him about coming on the show. And... He, he was he was my sister squadron when he did oh, that. Is that right? Okay. And if you tell him, the true story he'll tell, I heard it first, mm-hmm. was he pulled back and he fired the Zuni. Right. And the airplane was gone. Now, he pulled mill lead above the airplane. I don't know. TR, you'll have to come on and, and convince somebody else. Someone I was never apparently convinced. validated the kill. Was Admiral Stockdale in a A4 when he was shot down? Yes. So there's some notoriety as well. And of course, the Blue Angels flew it. And uh, it, I don't know how else to sign off other than just to keep giving the thing accolades. But yeah, just what a great aircraft. And uh, it's been fun speaking about it today. I, I want to thank you for your time. And I uh, can't ask you the final question because you've already said you didn't have a call sign. You weren't, you were a light attack pilot, right? Yeah. Uh, now you did get to fly the F-4 though. That's pretty cool. And the F-18. When I was CAG, I, you know, they were towards the end of the head F-4s okay. and it was tough to get through the rag, uh, you know, because they were trying to still produce. I, mm. I don't know, I got about 15 hours or so, okay. which, which was not enough to take it to the ship. So I just right. flew the A-6s and uh, A-7s on the ship. Do any more flying today or? Any civilian flying? Oh, yeah. I got some Delta time just last week. And... <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Well, Steve, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed hearing your stories and information about the A-4 Skyhawk. Unless you have any parting shots, I think we can wrap it up and get out of here. I think the final thing, I look at my notes and one more boost for the A-4. Mm-hmm. Lower loss rate permission flown than any other comparable aircraft in Vietnam, Navy or Air Force. That's as good a send-off as I could possibly come up with. So, thanks very much. Enjoyed it. Well, that was a great discussion. Thank you again, Admiral Briggs. Now, who better to help us digest everything we just learned than our previous guest from Episode 39 on the A-7 Corsair II, retired U.S. Navy Captain Tom Mitchell. Demon, welcome back to the show. 
Well, thanks, Vincent. It sure is great to be back with you again. Indeed. Well, let's see. When we spoke to you last, we talked a little bit about some of your A4 experience, and we're going to capitalize on that now. But before we get to that and discussing the interview in general, what's new with you? It's been about a year since we've heard from you last. Well, you know, things have been going very well, and I've really enjoyed your podcast. I think what you're doing is exceptional. So to be called back again is fantastic. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome. So I know a lot of people enjoyed that episode, so I'm sure they're thrilled to have you back. All right. During the episode, you mentioned having quite a few A4 hours. And in fact, you were involved with some of the air intercept detachments on the CVS carriers. correct. So did you and Admiral Briggs ever cross paths? It sounds like you had a lot of common experiences. Well, we have a lot in common, but we were never together operationally. I remember he was the Latwing PAC commander when I was on the air training Ah. for ComNav Air PAC. So that was an 89, 91 timeframe. So okay. I remember him well from those days. You know, <laughs> right. He was a good commander. Oh, so. I'm sure. So we'll just cover a few different things here about our interview. First off, we covered most of the variants, not in excruciating detail, but we didn't really talk too much about the A4M. And I guess they called that the Skyhawk 2. Do you know much about that one? I don't know a ton about it, except it was a rocket ship. I oh. would have loved to have flown the M. <laughs> I never had that opportunity. It was a Marine Corps airplane. Okay. But it had an enlarged cockpit, a better bombing system. Hmm. And of course, it had the 408 engine, which was amazing uh, aircraft. I bet. As you know, the Blue Angels flew the A-4 using the 408, and it was just a rocket ship. I mean... I remember that show when I was a young child. it was terrific. It also had the hump. It did. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then they had an OA-4M, or maybe just an OA-4, but but like we talked about on the A-10 episode, that was more of a mission than an airframe. Correct. Okay. And O was like observation for... I would imagine had, you know, all the various radios in there for UHF, VHF, Mm. and all dealing with all the different things with the ground. Okay. For forward air controllers. The basic aircraft was similar. Okay. And then there were, of course, many variants specific to different countries that operated the A-4, such as the A-4S for Singapore, the A-4KU for Kuwait. And then Brazil used some unique terminology on their A-4s. And I didn't mention this during the interview, but I believe they also are still flying the Skyhawk. I believe so, yeah. And I had some interface with them years ago. We went down there to Rio, and uh, we actually cleared the deck of our carrier so they could work their airplanes. But the A-4, I don't remember operating at the time. Hmm. This was back in the 77 time frame. Okay. It was kind of interesting, though. They came out and did some compatibility training with you? Well, that and the mere fact their carrier was going through overhaul, so they were not getting any at-sea time with the air crews. So. I see. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've done something recently, I think, with the French as well, where their Rafale have come over and landed on our ships, and we've landed on theirs. So, And then, let's see. I talked a little bit about, I thought maybe that there was an A7 that had flown with its wings folded, but I think maybe it's just the F-8. Did you ever know about any A-7s? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Several, yes. I had a good friend. Now he's a retired admiral, believe it or not, but he was a nugget taking off one of the first hops in his squadron back at Cecil and had gone through and hot pitted and then taxied out. And I guess he taxied by the final checker, took off with his wings folded. Dear. And he remembers getting airborne and not doing well. An (laughs) airplane is coming down and he says, I've got to get out. So he ejects. He said, I have a vivid memory of seeing the airplane just before it hit the ground with the wings folded. Uh And he went, oh my gosh. (laughs) And so he said, when he got on the ground, he looked one way and there was a woods 
And the other way was the hangar. And he said, I was getting ready to run to the woods because <laughs> I knew I was in big trouble. Oh, so, boy. Yeah. But he survived it. Yeah, well, so. both figuratively and literally, obviously he survived. Yeah. But, uh, so in other words, we're not a zero defect service. True, we make mistakes. Right. It's not great. We certainly don't like to, but in other words, he didn't get kicked out. No, he okay. made admiral. Wow. So it was over. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another one, which was more, uh, took off and wings folded, but he was light loaded. Okay. And actually flew. Wow. And he said the amazing thing was when he moved the stick, he had three rudders in the air. I mean, <laughs> a rudder plus two ailerons. <laughs> so and he, had, he actually made it back. Oh, wow. He recovered the airplane. The hydraulics weren't doing too well. but He yeah. had wonderful directional uh, control, I he guess. He did. Much well, his yaw was fantastic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So I wasn't wrong about that. That's good to know. And then I didn't know virtually anything about the AGM-12 bullpup. Bullpup, and yes. I was wondering how they guided it. Do you happen to know? I did a little research. I couldn't really find uh, anything. Online. As I recall, it's radio control. Okay. So it was radio control. So, I actually f- had fired some bullpups in training. Mm. We never used them in combat. And you probably followed how you would get high and coming down mm-hmm. and you launched it and there was a flare on the back. Right. And you would watch the flare. I'll tell you what, it was like playing um an amazing video game to try to look at the flare, look at the target, fly uh-huh. the airplane. And you had a little controller right. over on the left side. You would drive the thing into the target. The problem with it, you were just a hanging target right. in the air. So it was not a great combat weapon. Well, yeah. so you would want to fly on the same generally flight path as the bullpup. You were following it. the bullpup. Right. So guess what? The gunners on the ground go, oh. We can see the smoke trail coming down, so we're looking back the trail to find where the uh-huh. uh, aircraft that launched it okay. is coming down. So it was not a great weapon in that respect. So one of those weapons that somehow a crucial uh, point slipped by the engineers, and once they realized the shortcoming of flying in the same path as the weapon, then probably not it didn't that. last much longer after right. that, sounds like. Exactly. All right, fair yeah. enough. Couple other thoughts. Uh, Stephen Koontz's book on the Thanhua Bridge is out. Mm-hmm. It's called The Dragon's Jaw, an epic story of courage and tenacity in Vietnam. And just for fun, if people want to check that out, we have added an Amazon affiliate link on the shop page of our website. So you can go ahead and check that out. And then finally, just to be precise, although I hate to end on a low note, but uh, he had mentioned the USS Oriskany fire. And I looked that up. It was October 26, 1966. It tragically killed 44 sailors. It said a lot of airmen just because it was up around the aircraft. Well, a lot of pilots were lost. Right, right. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. And then also yeah. uh, 156 were injured. Right. So It was devastating. I had an instructor when I was in NROTC at Auburn. He was lieutenant commander, aviator, went back to the fleet, and he was one of those lost on a risk. Uh, so just the tragedy of yeah. everything. Yeah. I don't know. Have you ever seen this gentleman who writes a letter to his roommate every year that was lost in the Ariskany? No. It's so touching. Apparently, he went in the room to do something and left and survived, and his roommate didn't. Oh, my goodness. So it just breaks your heart every so year. So now, ever since then, he writes every a letter to Every year on the anniversary of, okay. of his parish roommate. Wow. Okay. Very, very touching. Goodness. All right. So, Demon, uh, first, I forgot to ask you, how many hours did you end up with in the A4? When we met last, you said that you had about 2,800 in the A7, but I know you had quite a bit of experience in the scooter. Well, the scooter is a lot less because okay. I did two fleet tours in right. it, and I got a little bit of time later flying the T-Bird. But mm-hmm. um, 
Probably twelve to fourteen hundred. Okay. Yeah. So, so again, as I always say on the show, we could certainly have gone on and on with the Admiral on the A four, but based on your experiences, anything that needs to come out uh, about that aircraft that we didn't mention? Well, you know, let's go back one second when we okay. were talking about the uh, working with the CVS. Yes. We kind of got away from that okay. a little. Yeah, that was an incredible experience because what happened was they put A4s on and the squadron was called a VSF, hmm. anti-submarine fighter squadron. Okay. And there were two of them that were stood up called VSF-1 and 2. Uh, sorry, it was one in three they did. All right. But later, VA-45 at Cecil Field was tasked with providing the same thing on the East Coast. And it was called VA-45 Dead 11 on Intrepid. And they had four A-4 Charlies. And then I got involved because after that deployment, they created a permanent debt called VA-45 Debt 1. And I joined Debt 1. I was part of Debt 1. We mm -hmm. had five super echoes nice airplanes we're talking about the humpback yeah it's an e with a humpback okay cool airplane beautiful airplane <laughs> anyway so we had like i say five aircraft seven pilots one maintenance officer and about 65 troops it was mikhail's navy i loved it <laughs> we were the darlings of the ship because okay. we were the only jets wow oh, really and we got wow. away with anything but we went deployed to the East Atlantic, came home, went to the North Atlantic, where we did 157 intercepts of Russian Soviet aircraft wow. because we went all the way up the UK gap, all the way across the top of Scandinavia. I mean, mm -hmm. we were north of the Arctic Circle, so much so that they said, do not fly east of the carrier because you're entering Soviet airspace. <laughs> It was amazing, yeah. you know. So, so why did they use the A4 in this role? I mean, now I think of the A4, truthfully, as an air-to-air -air platform because it has been used in aggressor or adversary work for so long and, of course, the movie Top Gun and everything else. But back then, it was originally, as we said, the nuclear strike. Nuclear, I think it is. Yeah. I've been corrected on this. i got to start saying it right. Nuclear strike. Right. And then, you know, a little bit of the air-to-air, -air, but mostly it was air-to-conventional strike. Was it a factor of maybe it was the only thing that worked on the size of the carriers that were available? That had a lot to do with okay. the size of the aircraft. And also, most of those were like 27 Charlies. So, right. you know, the small World War II aircraft, like I was on Intrepid. That's where we were. Mm -hmm. So it was the perfect airplane for that. And it was really cool. We carried two drop tanks, and we had five wing stations. The outboard wings, one and five, carried sidewinders. So we had two live sidewinders on board and then we could carry a bomb rack or something on the center line for training or practice or whatever uh -huh. we needed we stood alerts we were launched we went after the russians it was really uh, an interesting time yeah and i had some fun experiences with the russians <laughs> everything from a bear guy holding up a playboy waving it at you <laughs> to a badger that tried to fly me in the water really yeah wow. so you know so we yeah, it was great. I enjoyed it. So it was a good tour. By the way, it morphed into that was the year that we ramped up in Vietnam. So we went to the North Atlantic was our second thing, came home early, pumped up to 16 A4s, 22 pilots, and went back to defend the Med as the attack carrier with 16 A4s. Wow. Because the Roosevelt the old FDR and the Kennedy were stuck over there deployed because mm. of all the air the carriers going to Westpac. So we became the carrier in the med with mm. 16 A4s. We were powerful. <laughs> I guess. So, 
And interestingly, at the end of that tour, I transitioned to A7s. So that was in 73. Well, if you remember, the 73 war cranked up for the Israelis. And I was already in the A7 rag, and um, I got a phone call saying, can you come back and ferry an A4 to Israel? Uh-huh. And I would have done it, but I had hepatitis. I was grounded. Oh, no. But a bunch of my squadron mates did. Right, like we so, talked about with the Admiral. Wow. Yeah, okay. you were talking about that with the Admiral. That's why I brought it up. Uh-huh. So we actually, uh, our guys were involved in flying them over. Huh. And they said it was amazing. They landed, taxied up. They climbed out. They were given a cold beer, taken to a bus. And as they look back, the airplane is being armed, refueled, and a guy's getting ready to go. That's okay. how quickly wow. they turned it. I mean, right then. You know what else came out in the interview I just forgot about until now is uh, I'd asked the Admiral about whether the hump on the A4 made much of a difference. Was it noticeable at all? No, okay. not at all. No, I, I mean, it was fairly small. Low, and it was pretty dynamic because it was you know, curved back, so right. it was aerodynamic. It didn't okay. have a blunt area to it. So. Gotcha. But it was a great thing because it held all your EW gear. Right. And I know he said in his, you know, they had to take away down in what we call the hell hole mm-hmm. for putting the EW gear in there and uh, took away one of your cannons. Right. But, you know, when we were in Vietnam flying the Charlies, they, uh, we never used that gun, really. We carried gun pods hmm. with Gatlin guns. Really? And it was awesome. <laughs> you can't believe the firepower for that thing. How many missions did you have? Uh, around 90. But I did a lot of, we did a lot of gunfire spotting for the ships, or not a lot, but a, a number of missions. Mm-hmm. The loadout was the leader carried two Mark IV gun pods, and the wingy carried four Zuni packs. So you had 16 Zuni rockets. We were a forward-firing show, <laughs> and it was amazing, yeah. you know. Well, thanks for sharing your experiences and expertise. Before we let you go, though, Demon, I have a phone call here from a gentleman I've had for a couple months. Okay. And it's actually addressed to you. So why don't we uh, take a listen to this real quick? Uh, I will listen. Hi, name is John Pianetta, calling from the San Miguel area. Just heard the uh, A7 podcast, and uh, I did fly them in 72. And a couple comments. The A7 Echo actually had three hydraulic systems. And the weak spot was that all three lines went through the right wheel well, so a very dangerous spot to get hit. And they were all 3,000-pound systems, but the RAT only produced 600 PSI if you ever uh, took a hit. And, of course, as long, if you lose blood, you don't have any hydraulics. The other comment that Demon made about not having laser-guided, uh, we actually did do laser-guided weapons in Vietnam in 72, but the designator had to be another airplane. We were not self-designated. And on the Walleye 2, um, we were actually the research and development squadron, so we did have data link, and we could control our own weapon, and obviously we had a recording of that, so made good nighttime movies. At any rate, just uh, wanted to make that comment about the A7, and yeah, it was a phenomenal airplane, certainly not a supersonic fighter, but We had an awful lot of capability that the facts really enjoyed. At any rate, just thought I'd add some comments about the the A7's capabilities. Thank you. All right, Demon. Well, what do you think of John's call? Well, you know, you won't believe this, uh, Vincent, but I, today, before our interview, talked with John on the phone. Did you? I did. (laughs) And it was very interesting. He had been in VA-195. And he was there in 72 when they started going to the north. Okay. And so he shared a lot of experiences that I wasn't aware of. 
for one thing, the question was, did we ever use LGBs? Well, I never did okay. in the A7, but in fact, I know later on in the Gulf War and all it was sure. used. But he said, actually, they did some experimental work with it, working with the Air Force, F-4s coming in. He said it really didn't last long, okay. So, but that was one of the points. Another was we talked about the walleye. He said, well, they ran the walleye using a pod on the carrier airplane where we used two aircraft, right. one to drop it and one to track it. But he said, interesting, he said, you know what they did with it? They went after some of the coastal gun batteries, which I found interesting. Hmm. And he said that he actually had some videos. You would see uh, the walleye going in, and there's a guy smoking a cigarette oh, by the gun battery. And next thing you know, he's looking like this and starting to run away, and then it goes black. Wow. So, Not John, pretty. I thank him because I had a delightful conversation with oh, good. him about a lot of the things they did over there that were a little different in some way. Yes. Well, was his uh, experience after yours then? Uh, Yes. Okay. In Vietnam, it was. He went as a nugget to the A7. I mean, he started out in A7. Well, we can start wrapping this up then, and we'll do that by publicly announcing our new Patreon strike leads, Bill Goller, Michael Solovich, Rob Green, Alex Big Zam, Kurt Billard, and Shiora Winswalker. And we always want to remind our listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Demon, thanks very much for returning to the Fighter Pilot Podcast to discuss the venerable A-4 Skyhawk. The listeners and I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. You know, it's always a delight to be here. So thank you so much, Vincent. I appreciate it. Appreciate what you do. So thank you. You're welcome. So that'll do it for this episode. As promised last year, retired U.S. Navy Commander Guy Snodgrass returns to the show next week to discuss the various considerations and calculations involved in building an air-to-air intercept timeline. You won't want to miss it. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. So, uh, Vincent, you know, Admiral Briggs was talking about the A-4 Echoes when they were flying in Vietnam, how they uh, were configured with 10 500-pound bombs, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I flew the old Charlies over there, but what we did, we only have three stations, and we used a centerline drop tank for fuel. Okay. But on a major alpha strike, the centerline drop came off, and its place when a 2,000-pound bomb and then on the wing stations, we had 1,000 pounds on each side. Wow. So we had 4,000 pounds of big bombs that we carried on alpha strikes. Now, you didn't have a lot of extra fuel because right. you were doing internal only. But, you know, that the old scooter echoes, Charlies were awesome, you know. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that in for uh, 
you know, it was amazing how you'd use the versatility of that aircraft. So, Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.